everybody, this is Mervy, or simply Michael. Welcome to my episode Decoding HBR 1216 the easy way and a bit more. You remember HBR 1216 digital data transfer where Ken Fallon put out about 20 minutes of Morse encoded text without telling us anything else about it? I wonder if he was aware of what he started but it served its purpose as it intrigued some people and they put a, a lot of effort in decoding this secret message as shown in Landier's episode HBR 1343 too clever for your own good where he described his awesome way of decoding the Morse message from Ken's episode and this recording is kind of a sequel to the previous two. Please first let me digress a little bit because one of the things Landier's episode did was to bring back a memory of some 20 years ago where I tried to decode the Morse telemetry beacon of an amateur radio satellite. The satellite was AMSAT OSCAR 21 back at the time and the computer I tried to use for it was a Commodore Business Machines CBM 8032. So let me elaborate a little bit on this topic. Amateur radio satellites, including the most recent CubeSats which are deployed at a mind-boggling rate right now, usually include a Morse-encoded telemetry beacon where they send down some important health parameters of a satellite like a battery voltage, solar panel, current, uh, temperature on board and such. Of course there are often other downlinks using higher bandwidth digital encodings but having the satellite telemetry Morse-encoded enables you to literally sit down with pen and paper, write down the text message and take the formulas, a hand calculator and get to the relevant physical parameters on board of the satellite, which is a neat thing. AMSAT OSCAR 21 was a very rewarding target for experimentation because it had high transmit power and the signal was easy to pick up even with simple antennas and you hadn't to put a lot of effort in, in the technical side to be able to receive a decent signal from this satellite. The downlink was on 2 meters at 145.8 something megahertz. So I could use my amateur radio 2 meter rig to receive this satellite. The next step was to get the analog received signal into the digital domain to be able to hook it up to the computer for later decoding. I had to build uh, some interface which never made it to a real PCB. I think it only lived on an experimentation board with the, with the sockets where you could plug in the wires of the, of the components directly. And it was indeed a very simple setup. I took the audio signal from the receiver speaker, amplified it a little bit more and then just rectified it by a diode. So this setup was completely non-selective and I ended up with basically a voltage varying on the on the loudness of the signal in the receiver. And I found out there was quite a significant difference between background noise and the tone produced when the satellite was keying Morse. So everything I had to do was find a decent threshold which distinguished background noise from tone present, compare the varying voltage against it and decide if voltage is above threshold, 
we have a one. If voltage is below, we have a zero. And that's basically all the interface did. But that was the signal I fed to the computer. And the computer, in air quotes, was this CPM8032. Commodore Business Machines 8032. It was one of those console type machines with a green screen monitor and the keyboard all built together in a very sturdy metal housing, grayish, beige colors, which was already far outdated at this point in time, but it was discarded at some local school and had mysteriously found its way to my home. So that was what I had at hand, so I wanted to use it. It had one of those well-known MOS 6502 processors running at 1 MHz and 32 kilobyte of RAM. And it also featured a built-in Commodore BASIC 4.0, which I used for programming the machine. I have a link to the Wikipedia page for this Commodore patent and CBM machines on the, in the show notes. You might have a look there to see how these machines looked like. Mine, mine looked exactly like the image of the 4032 they have there. And I also had this 4040 double five and a quarter inch floppy drive. This machine had an 8-bit extension port where you could feed in signals and that's what I did. I took the output signal of my radio interface and hooked it up to one logic input pin of this 8-bit port. And all I had to do in the, in the basic program was to use a peak command at the right address to read the byte value of this 8-bit port, then mask out the bit and, and then decide if there was more keying from the radio interface. And not knowing better at the time, I used three-path approach with three separate programs, with the first program being simply an endless loop, sampling the logic pin input, and depending whether it was a, a high or a low, writing a different character to a text file on the floppy. So I used the, the floppy drive as intermediate storage to record the digital input data stream. This input loop had enough oversampling capabilities to cleanly record the dits and das, so the dots and dashes of the Morse encoding. And this worked pretty fine until the buffer was full and the floppy drive actually spun up to write the data to the, to the physical medium. This completely screwed up all my timing in, in this endless loop and I had dropouts. My skills back then were not sophisticated enough to really fix that. So I simply had to live with it and that's what I did. So after the satellite disappeared below the horizon again, after a path of 10 to 15 minutes, which is quite usual for, for low Earth orbiting satellites, I went into the second decoding path with another program, which took the input of the stored digital input stream from the file and decoded it to dots and dashes and convert these to actual letters and characters. And the output of this program basically was the same text as a skilled operator could have written down with pen and paper just sitting down listening to the audio from the receiver. This text went into another file on the floppy drive, which was then used as input for the third path, another program which knew the telemetry format and converted the characters to, to actual figures and numbers again, applied the necessary formulas for scaling and such, and added physical units to the to the numbers, and the output were real usable, readable physical parameters of the satellite. Like I said, uh, battery voltage, internal reference voltage of the bus and whatever. Altogether, not a very sophisticated solution, but I had a lot of fun doing it, learned something along the way, and that's how it should be. Enough memories. Now let's get back to the meat of the episode. Decoding HPR 1216 the easy way. The way Landir did it made me freeze in awe how he found a way to tackle every obstacle he was presented with and uh, 
It's just amazing how he did it. He deemed it a waste of time, but I think it's completely in the eye of the beholder. And he obviously had fun doing it. And, and it resulted in a very entertaining, very interesting episode for Hacker Public Radio. So it was all worth the time. What this also brings back to mind is that it's sometimes very important to, to look at a problem from a different angle. Because from an amateur radio perspective, there was an obvious way to decode this Morse message and uh, it was not, not very difficult. As Langer's episode made obvious for me, not everyone is aware of these possibilities and, and it makes sense for me to share the lame way how to do it with you in this episode. So the only magic is to use an amateur radio communication program. There are many out there, but uh, on Linux there is FLDigi. I think it stands for Fast Light Digital. And it supports a gazillion of digital communication modes. And among them there is CW, which stands for Continuous Wave, and it means Morse code. So you should get FLDigi, which is in the normal repositories for any Ubuntu Debian-based distribution. The amateur radio stuff is in, in the user repositories for Arch, and I think you will find it in, in the repos for any other distribution. It's also cross-platform. You will find versions for the Windows and, and I think also for the Mac operating systems. So the first step for you is, if you don't have it installed, please get FLDigi. And while you are at it, Make sure you have the Pulse Audio Volume Control application installed. PAVU Control, I think it's a separate package. I'm not sure if it's installed by default, but it's one of my must-have applications which get, which get installed very early in the process of setting up a new system. PAVU Control, the Pulse Audio Volume Control application, is a very, very useful tool if you play with audio and Pulse Audio. And we will use it here to help us get the audio into FLDigi. Okay, now let's assume you have installed FLDigi. And if you run it for the first time, you will be presented with a configuration wizard. You can ignore most settings for the moment. The only important thing is the audio devices check the checkbox at port audio and keep the, keep the defaults. And then next, next finish. And you will be presented with the main the main screen of the program. It's basically basically divided in three important areas. The upper one with the yellowish, orangish background is the receive window where the decoded and or received text will appear. Below there's this bluish background for the uh, input area where you write the text down, which will be transmitted if you are using the program for digital communication. And the black area on the bottom, which has a one to about 4,000 Hertz Frequency scale is where the waterfall display will appear later, which is an, a spectrogram of the audio input signal. About about 3 kilohertz is, is the, the audio frequency range you will get as output from a normal amateur radio receiver. So this, this display covers the needed frequency range. And you will see color encoded slowly scroll by audio signal strength over frequency. Now let's uh, select the right decoding mode. On the top menu bar, there is op mode, the operating mode. Select this drop down, and the first item is CW selected. And then go in the in the waterfall in the black window on the bottom. And if you move the mouse, you will see a yellow marking. And put this yellow marking to the 800 hertz position. And just click there. 
the red receive window indicator will appear there and we are almost good to go and that's basically all we have to set up for FLDG for the moment the next thing is start the pulse audio volume control PAVU control has a tapped interface with tabs named playback recording output devices input devices and configuration so the playback and recording tabs basically show applications or logical audio sources or audio syncs and output devices and input devices are more or less the physical interfaces you have go to the recording tab and you sh should see uh, an entry here also plugin fldg and also capture from then there is a, a combo box to select the source where, where FLDG will get its audio from. So on my computer here, the, the, the onboard sound card is called built-in audio analog stereo. So please, in your case, substitute built-in audio analog stereo with the name you see for your sound card. And then go to the also plugin FLDG input selection combo box. And normally if you select the name of your sound card, you will use the microphone input of your sound card. And what we are doing here is we will use monitor of insert name of your sound card. Uh, so in my case, monitor of built-in audio analog stereo. I select this as recording source for the FLDG program. What it is, is basically it's tapping the output of your sound card before it goes to the analog digital converter and making it available again as input for recording programs. So this is a very, very simple way to basically loop back what you hear at your speaker or headphones output to another program to record it again or decode something or manipulate or whatever. You can achieve something similar by using also mixer and, and, and using your sound card and enabling the output as input for your sound card. But this includes the analog path because the signal is converted from digital to analog and the analog mixer on the sound card reroutes back this analog output signal to the input converts it back from analog to digital and that's what you see as as a recording source there so you you have this conversion losses and so on so the cleaner way is to use the digital data stream without any conversion losses to, to the analog domain and tap that and make this digital stream again available as input source within Pulse Audio. So that's what these monitors are. If you select monitor of your sound card name as input for FLDG, you're good to go. So now take your favorite media, media player like, like Alter Player or whatever, load up episode 1216, digital data transfer by CAN, and start it. If you then change to FLDG again, you should see the waterfall display, a bluish background and yellow dots and lines representing the audio density over frequency of the intro music of the HPR episode. The decoder might print some funny characters during that phase, but don't worry. After the intro music stops, you will see a dominant signal at 800 Hz representing the Morse code message and the decoder should start right out printing a meaningful text message. And as the program is meant for noisy radio channels, it has filters in place, so a little bit of overlap of the Morse message with the intro music will not harm in any way. I don't want to go much into detail about FLTG right now, but I encourage you to get it and play around with it. And you might want to throw some uh, real-world signals at it and try some of the different operating modes of it to decode some of the air signals. 
Even if you do not have a shortwave receiver or something equivalent, the monitor input feature of Pulse Audio comes to the rescue also because there are receivers on the web out there. There is WebSDR. Go to your browser, head over to websdr.org, like whiskey echo bravo sierra delta romeo.org. WebSDR stands for, for Web Software Defined Radio, or in this case, Software Defined Receiver. On websdr.org, you will find a list of links and frequency ranges where people all over the world have hooked up their receivers to WebSDR servers, made it available for anybody to connect to. And on the very top of the list, you will see the WebSDR of the University of Twente, which covers the continuous frequency range from 0 to 29.16 MHz. And this one is run by Peter Thier de Boer, Papa Alpha 3, Foxtrot Whiskey Mike, the inventor of WebSDR, and that's what we're gonna use right now. At the moment I'm doing this here, it has 207 concurrent users, each of them being able to listen to a completely individual spot in this whole shortwave frequency range. And if you follow the link to the 20 WebSDR on the top of the page, you will see a picture of, an, of a PCB, of a printed circuit board with three chips on it. And that's the actual re receiver used for feeding the WebSDR. If you scroll a little bit down the page, you will see a waterfall display of the whole frequency range. Beneath it, you have markings for the amateur radio frequency bands in green and uh, purple for the broadcast frequency ranges. And in the black area below the waterfall, you can click to set your receive position or drag it with the mouse or enter your frequency directly in the input field a little bit further down. You can use the waterfall controls on the right side to zoom in, zoom out, or zoom to a given frequency band to change the, the scope of your waterfall. And just for a start, I would simply select USB, uh, the upper sideband, for receiving digital modes, and just select one of the amateur radio bands. At the beginning, you usually have Morse code, and then a little bit further up, there are the other digital modes, and then there's voice. If you want to listen to voice communication, usually you use USB, and for frequencies below 10 MHz, use LSB, which is the lower sideband, and USB is the upper sideband for single sideband modulation, which is the common mode for voice on, on shortwave. If you want to listen to broadcast radio stations, use AM. And for a start, for playing around with digital modes, I would suggest you concentrate on either PSK31, which you will find in FLDigi in the operating modes, drop down PSK, PSK31. You will see the receive indicator being a narrow line because PSK is a narrow band teletype mode and it will sound like this. And each of these whining tones is a, is a separate communication channel. And if you go in FLDigi to the view menu and select view channels, you will get a decoder which tries to decode multiple signals in the frequency range to see what's going on there. And a good starting point for PSK31 signals is on the 20 meter amateur radio band at 14070 kHz. There you will find lots of PSK31 stations. You might also want to activate on view waterfall docked scope to give you a little tuning indicator on the lower right corner. In the case of PSK31, it will be an analog clock-like display with a single hand showing you the phase angle of the decoded signal. And, and for PSK31, which is a binary phase encoded signal, if the tuning is correct, it will be on the, on the center line up and down with an ideal signal. But you will see this if you play around. 
Another interesting mode is RTTY, which is the original radio teletype mode. You go to operation mode, RTTY, RTTY 45, because amateur radio is 45 baud. You will see the receive indicator in the waterfall display gets wider because it uses 170 hertz shift between two tones and it sounds like this. A good starting point is around 14.082 kilohertz for RTTY signals. The tuning indicator will change to an oscilloscope type uh, display and uh, the signals will basically be double lines in the waterfall. Just put the receive marker there and click it to decode an individual signal. Just play around, have fun. So before I'm out of here, let me add another hint about Pulse Audio. It's been a while I have heard people saying in podcasts or whatever that they had to shut down Pulse Audio in order to run this or that old legacy application still using the OSS sound system. And with Pulse Audio occupying the interface, the OSS interface was not available for the application, so they had to shut down Pulse Audio. By now, I think the necessity for it is reduced because there shouldn't be too many applications around using the OSS sound interface, but there is a neat way to do it. And these things are called OSS wrappers. And they do what the name says. They wrap around the application, present an OSS interface towards the application and speak themselves to Pulse Audio. And there are two of them I'm aware of. One is PADSP, Papa Alpha Delta Sierra Papa, and which, is, which can be found in the Pulse Audio Utils package, at least on, on Debian-based systems. And there is also in the ALSA-OSS package the program called AOSS. And all you do is you prepend the application you want to use with either PADSP or AOSS, and you should be good to go. And if everything goes fine, they will show up with a proper application name in the Pulse Audio Mixer like any other uh, program as a playback source or as a recording sync, depending on your application, and all will be fine. I had cases where one of those programs for some reason didn't work, so your, your mileage may vary, and you might try uh, both in, in some occasions. I use it primarily for SIGGEN, a uh, command line slash NCURSES uh, based audio signal generator, which can produce uh, waveforms like sine, triangle, rectangle, whatever you want, noise, and comes sometimes in handy for playing with audio signals and, and testing testing uh, stuff. So that's all for now, folks. I finally did it. I finished my first Hacker Public Radio episode. And if I can do, you can too. Whatever you want to talk about, it's very likely that there is someone interested in the Hacker Public Radio community. So please go ahead, record a show, contribute, have fun. Bye. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. 
unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.